This morning we're going to consider the beginning of Jesus' ministry in Galilee. Jesus' ministry in Galilee. We'll be looking at Luke chapter 14 and verse 30. In fact, we'll read those verses now. And I'll be referring to, looking at some of these verses in more detail, but we'll get a broad understanding if I read to you Luke 4 verse 14 through to 30. Verse 14, and Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit into Galilee and there went out a fame of him through all the region about. And he taught in their synagogues being glorified of all. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up and as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up for to read. And there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he have anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. (coughs) He have sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them, that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And he closed the book, and he gave it again to the minister, and sat down. And the eyes of all them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began to say unto them, This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. And all bear him witness, and wondered at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said unto them, Ye will surely say unto me this proverb, Physician, heal thyself. Whatsoever we have heard done in Capernaum, do also here in thy country. And he said, Verily I say unto you, No prophet is accepted in his own country. But I tell you of a truth. Many widows were in Israel in the days of Elias, when the heaven was shut up three years and six months, when great famine was throughout all the land. But unto none of them was Elias sent, save unto Sarepta, a city of Sidon, unto a woman that was a widow. And many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elias the prophet, And none of them was cleansed, saving Naaman the Syrian. And all they in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath, and rose up, and thrust him out of the city, and led him unto the brow of the hill, whereon their city was built, that they might cast him down headlong. But he, passing through the midst of them, went his way. I've done this before, it happens nearly every week, just when I'm reading through it all, I did I did warn you that we'll be looking at a few verses, and I've realised when I'm just reading through that, that there's, there, there, there is a lot that uh, we won't be looking at this morning, 
But anyway, may the Lord be pleased to bless the portions that we do consider from Luke's Gospel, chapter 4. In our last two visits to Luke's Gospel, it was seen that whilst the Lord Jesus Christ was baptised by John the Baptist at the River Jordan, the Holy Spirit descended and abode on him. Also a voice from heaven said, Thou art my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. We saw that the the triune God there with the Son of God being baptised, the Spirit descending upon him, and the voice from heaven. The baptism of Jesus was seen to be the time of his anointing for the work of redemption that God had sent him to do. Jesus was then led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness where he was tempted by the devil for 40 days. In today's passage, details are given concerning the beginning of the earthly ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ in Galilee. And once again, there is mention of the Holy Spirit. Look at verses 14 and 15. In John, uh, Luke chapter 4. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit into Galilee. And there went out a fame of him throughout all the region about. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified of all. Having had God, the Holy Spirit, descend upon him at his baptism, and having been driven by God the Holy Spirit into the wilderness, we now see that Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit, the God the Holy Spirit, into Galilee. The descent of the Holy Spirit upon Jesus, he's being led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness, and then returning in the power of the Holy Spirit, they serve, amongst anything else, they serve as a reminder that when the Son of God became flesh, He made himself of no reputation, as the Apostle Paul puts it in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 7. Of no reputation is a translation of just one Greek word, kenao, and it means to make empty. Hence the words of Charles Wesley, he's left his father's throne above, so free, so infinite his grace, emptied himself of all but love, and bled for Adam's helpless race. Some of our English Bible's versions actually say in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 7 that he emptied himself. We need to be very careful with our understanding of the Lord Jesus Christ emptying himself or making himself of no reputation. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever which apart from anything else means that he didn't stop being the creator God when he became flesh. In fact, he didn't lose one single divine attribute, not one. And it's not as if the consequence of the Son of God becoming flesh was that he made himself of no reputation. It's not because Jesus became flesh that he emptied himself. That's not what it means. I say that because Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is now highly exalted. He is seated 
at the right hand of the throne of God. And as I often ask when I say that, who can you imagine could ever sit at the right hand of the throne of God? Could any of us? The answer must be no. I think you must know that. What about the angels? What about the archangel Michael? Or the angel Gabriel, perhaps? Can you imagine them sitting at the right hand of the throne of God? Again, the answer must be no. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I just can't imagine anyone other than God sitting at the right hand of the throne of God. And the Lord Jesus Christ is now seated at the right hand of God, co-equal with God. And yet he is still a man. The Son of God made himself of no reputation when he came into the world as a suffering servant. He came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Also during his 33 years in the world, though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be rich in spiritual blessings, such as receiving forgiveness for all of your sins, past, present and future, and receiving everlasting life, believing, you believing, that he lived a life of perfect obedience as a sinless man on your behalf, and that he carried the weight of your sin in his body at the cross. With that understanding of the Lord Jesus Christ emptying himself or making himself of no reputation, we see that God the Holy Spirit abode on him and God the Holy Spirit led him and he returned to Galilee in the power of God the Holy Spirit. You can't help but notice these things as you carefully read the Bible. And it doesn't end there. The Bible tells us that Jesus cast out demons by the power of God the Holy Spirit. To give you some idea of how much the Lord Jesus Christ made himself of no reputation when he was in the world, though he is the mighty God, God nevertheless sent an angel to strengthen him in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before wicked men crucified him and killed him, put him to death on the cross in accordance with the counsel and foreknowledge of God. But we must never lose sight of the fact that in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. As the Apostle Paul put it in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 9, and something of that divine glory of Jesus was at times clearly revealed, such as when he was high up on a mountain with his apostles Peter, James and John, and his face shone as the sun, and his raiment was as white as light. Let's have a look at verse 15. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified of all. When Jesus was in Galilee, he taught in the synagogues where the Jews met for religious worship and for instruction. It was a practice that those who were in charge of the synagogues permitted established teachers and rabbis to address the congregations. 
the Lord Jesus Christ was one such person. And also when you look at Acts of the Apostles, there were others. There was the Apostle Paul, who on three Sabbaths went into the synagogue in Thessalonica, where he reasoned with the Jews and preached Christ unto them. That was the Apostle Paul who did that. Coming back to Jesus here, initially Jesus met with no hostility from his fellow Jews. Indeed, he was glorified of all, as we see in verse 15. However, that most certainly would not continue to be the case. Hostility towards Jesus was predicted in the Old Testament prophecy of Isaiah, chapter 53 and verse 3, where it is written, He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. This speaks of the Son of God, the Creator. He was despised and we esteemed him not, the prophet said. About 800 years before Jesus came into the world and made himself of no reputation. And in the New Testament, in John chapter 1 and verse 11, John says, he came unto his own, in other words, he came to the Jews, and his own received him not. In other words, they rejected him. So much for him being glorified of all. Let's move on to verse 16. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up for to read. Although the Lord Jesus Christ was born in Bethlehem, Nazareth in Galilee was the region where he grew up. We've already seen in chapter 2 and verse 4 that when the Virgin Mary was pregnant with Jesus, she and Joseph went to Bethlehem from the town of Nazareth to register for taxes. And then when Jesus was a 12-year-old child, he went home to Nazareth with Mary and Joseph, having travelled to Jerusalem to observe the Passover feast. We saw that in chapter 2, verse 51. And we saw, didn't we, that Jesus really was a 12-year-old boy and he really did grow in, 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 in stature and in wisdom as a 12-year-old boy. He wasn't out playing football with the other boys. He was sitting down in the temple with the, with the teachers of the law, asking questions and listening very carefully to them. And now being an adult of about 30 years of age, Jesus, having come to his hometown of Nazareth, went into the synagogue to read as he had done on previous occasions. No doubt his newfound fame generated quite a bit of interest with the locals keen to listen to the man whom they had always known as the carpenter in, uh, in Nazareth and the son of a carpenter but who was now being glorified of all. Looking at verses 17 through to 21 and there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah, and when he had opened the book, he found the place where it is written, 
the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he have anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He have sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And he closed the book and he gave it again to the minister and sat down and the eyes of all them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him and he began to say unto them, this day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. The Lord Jesus Christ, we've just read there, he stood up to read the scriptures, the prophecy of Isaiah was handed to him. And then Jesus found and read what we have recorded in our Bibles in the Old Testament in Isaiah 61. I read it to you earlier. No need to turn to to it again. It's in Isaiah 61 verses 1 and 2. Having read the passage, Jesus gave the book back to the servant. He sat down again and he declared himself to be the fulfilment of that 700 year old prophecy. Before we even consider the prophecy, I must say that I find it very interesting to note that the incarnate Son of God stood up to read the scriptures. We've got it there. In verse 16, I couldn't find it then, he stood up for to read at the end of verse 16. This is the incarnate Son of God, standing up to read the Word of God. Isn't that interesting? Also in the Old Testament, in the book of Nehemiah, it says that the people stood up when Ezra the priest opened the book of the law. You can all, I don't know, if you can imagine it, I can imagine it. I picture it every time I read that passage in Nehemiah. Everyone, all those Jews, rising for the reading of the word of God. Nowadays, there are still churches where the congregations stand up for the reading of the scriptures. And I wonder if we might benefit from doing likewise at our church. Standing up for the scripture reading would certainly engender an attitude of solemnity as we are reminded that it is nothing less than the word of God that we are reading and considering. I mean, as it is, I'm not accusing anyone in particular. As it is, though, we can just so easily sit there and perhaps not even pick up a Bible and stare out the window. I think the standing up, there's something to be said for that. Clearly Jesus thought so as well. As for those prophetic words that Jesus read to the congregation concerning himself and that are recorded in verses 18 and 19, they give details of the work that God anointed him to do when the Holy Spirit descended upon him at the River Jordan. It can be seen that Jesus was anointed to preach the gospel to the poor. I'm I'm looking at verse 18 now. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he have anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. What does that mean? 
Jesus would go around finding people, beggars and uh, people who have got no money or anything, and he'd preach the gospel to them. Never mind anyone else. Not at all. To bring glad tidings to those who, by the grace of God, come to a realisation that they are spiritually bankrupt. That kind of poverty. Spiritually bankrupt. And that far from having anything to commend themselves to a holy and righteous God, they have come to recognise that all their filthy, all their righteous acts are as filthy rags in God's sight. Jesus came to heal the broken hearted. That's also in verse 18. The broken hearted, people who are sad because their team lost at football, perhaps? Not at all. All who have broken and contrite hearts because they have sinned against a holy and righteous God. People who beat their chest, beat their breasts like the tax collector in the temple as they cry up to heaven, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That kind of brokenness of heart. Jesus came to preach deliverance to the captives. Still in verse 18 there. To preach deliverance to the captives. So Jesus went into the prisons, did he? Um, the jails, the local jails. Whenever he entered a new town, he visited the, the jail to preach to those. Well, how about Jesus came to preach to those who are held captive to sin and to Satan? That's what it means. Can you see, as we're looking through this, what Jesus was anointed to do, it embraces people from all, all sections of society. Not just a few, here and there. Jesus came to, go, to give sight to the blind. Verse 18, sight to the blind. In other words, to people who have their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the darkness of their wicked and sinful hearts. People living in darkness. Jesus was anointed to set at liberty them that are bruised. That is, people who are crushed by the weight of their own sin. Verse 19, let's have a look at that again. To preach the acceptable year of the Lord. That's a summary of what has already been said in verse 18. Jesus came to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. In the first instance, the acceptable year of the Lord refers to the Old Testament, to the year of Jubilee, which came every 50 years, and which was a time when debts were forgiven and slaves were released. In fulfilment of that, Jesus came into the world to liberate sinners and to pay their debt of sin. In a nutshell, verses 18 and 19 are all about forgiveness for repentance sinners. For example, looking again at verse 18, where Jesus said that he had come to preach deliverance to the captives. Deliverance comes from the same Greek word that forgiveness and remission come from. 
Same word. Likewise, where Jesus said that he had come to set at liberty them that are bruised, that word liberty also means forgiveness or remission. The same Greek word. It's all about forgiveness for sins in verse 18, verse 19. The forgiveness or remission that is received by those who were once in darkness and who were once held captive by sin and Satan was secured by Jesus at the cross where he redeemed them with his own precious blood. As it is written in Colossians chapter 1 verses 12 and 13 who have, who have delivered us, this is God, who have delivered us from the power of darkness and have translated us into the kingdom of his dear son, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. If you want to know what forgiveness of sins is, there you have it in Colossians chapter 1, 12 and 13, redemption through his blood. To those who were in darkness, and they've been translated, transferred into the kingdom of the Son of God, having been in the devil's dark domain. As we come to a close, we'll drop down to verse 28 to see the response of the Nazarenes to the most wonderful news that they would ever hear, news of true and everlasting freedom. Look at verse 28 and 29. And all they in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath and rose up and thrust him out of the city and led him unto the brow of the hill whereon the, their city was built, that they might cast him down headlong. Hang on a minute there. That's a change of um, attitude, isn't it? That, they weren't like that at the beginning. Look at verse 22 there. And all bear witness, bear him witness and wondered at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? Something happened to them. They became very, very hostile towards the Lord Jesus Christ. I wonder what that might be. Why was that hostility there towards Jesus? Perhaps it's the same reason as it is today. Same reason. In a world in which the devil is prince, there, there is still that, a response of most people. It's one of hostility towards the Lord Jesus Christ. Why is that? Because people love the darkness rather than the light. Because their deeds are evil. I know it in my own life. I know it before I came, became a Christian. And I can't pretend that I'm free from it completely now. The Lord Jesus Christ, he's given me liberty. He's given me freedom through his word, that word of truth. But I know that, that, that true freedom will finally come when I'm delivered from the very presence of sin. But what is it about people that causes them to be so hostile towards such a beautiful message that we read? about the Lord Jesus Christ coming into the world to set the captives free from sin, 
People who are held captive to sin, to Satan. People don't want to hear that because they're selfish. We're by nature, sinful nature, children of wrath. And as soon, we've looked at this recently, as soon as temptation comes along, we looked at this when Jesus was being tempted in the wilderness for 40 days. Truly tempted. But when we are tempted, what happens with us? We are drawn away by our own sinful hearts and then we conceive and bring forth sin. I love the language that is used in in the letter to the epistle of James. It's the kind of language that is normally associated with a woman conceiving and bringing forth a child. Well, what we all do, whether we're male or female, or whether we're males pretending to be females, or females pretending to be males, or whatever is going on in this world, this crazy and wicked world, is we all very easily, willingly, conceive and bring forth sin. As soon as temptation comes along. Why? Because we want to. Because we like it. Things that aren't necessarily in and of themselves sinful, but we capitulate and we do the things that we ought not do. And we don't do the things that we should do because in us, that is in our flesh, dwelleth no good thing, says the Apostle Paul. And then he went on to say concerning himself, a wretched man that I am, but I thank God for his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's how it is. But it's by the grace of God that a person is transfers from darkness to light and he doesn't, she doesn't do it. God does it. It's a work of God. Transferring uh, someone who is wallowing in sin and sin and depravity takes hold of that person and transfers them, translates them into the kingdom of Jesus through faith, through repentance. All by the grace of God. Otherwise, we'd be, we'd be perfectly happy to just wallow in our sin. And it's only when you are taken hold of by God and brought out of darkness, when you have your eyes open to see, your heart open to receive the good news of Jesus, that you realise how terrible things really are and how terrible your own situation is and how much you, you really do need the grace of God in your life and how wonderful it is. And I, you know, I lived for five years in India. You've heard this from me so many times. But um, I tell you, I would rather be a beggar on the streets in Calcutta, a believing beggar, someone who has a hope that reaches Christ, than be anywhere on this island uh, uh, with no hope whatsoever. I guess it's rather nice to have both, isn't it? To have comfort and, and some of the comforts of this world that this world brings and to have Jesus. But most of all, all I'm trying to say is 
that without Christ you have nothing whatsoever. You may have ambitions, things that you want to do. It all it could all come to nothing. You could die today, never mind tomorrow, today. Or it could all go pear-shaped for you. I could tell you a few stories of things going pear-shaped in my life. If I if I allowed myself to, to, to look back and to wallow in the things that have my own stupid fault, the things that have gone wrong in my life, but I don't. Because I look ahead. And I look unto Jesus, the author, the finisher, the perfecter of this wonderful Christian faith. Beautiful Christian faith because he is a beautiful saviour. The good news is, today is still the acceptable year of the Lord. And as has already been the case, not all are hostile towards Jesus. The people in the synagogue, they were hostile towards him, so much so, they wanted to kill him. To throw him over the brow of a hill, no less. And ultimately, um, three years later, in accordance with God's predetermined counsel, that's what they didn't throw him over the cliff, but they nailed him to a cross, lifted him up to die, according to God's will and his plan of redemption. Because at that cross, God laid on him, his son, the iniquity of all who would, who had trusted in him, who would trust in him. You go through the beginning of history to the end of history, to all whose trust is in Jesus. It was God's plan. And what do we see at the cross? I can't remember who I was talking to about it. It's only today though. The cross. Everything revolves around the cross. Creation. It was at our communion service. Creation does. History itself. Everything revolves around the cross because at the cross, what do we see there? The mercy of God, the grace of God, the justice of God, the holiness of God, the love of God. It's all there in the Lord Jesus Christ who though he made himself of no reputation never ceased to be God. Never forfeited one single divine attribute. And we see God in all his glory at the cross and his work, his plan coming to completion rather with Jesus finally saying, it is finished. So, it is still the acceptable day of the year of the Lord rather and purely by the grace of God there is still a remnant of men, women, boys and girls across the world who feel the weight of their sin and they cry out to God for mercy. Therefore repent, trust in the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, believing that at the cross 
your sins were laid upon him and he redeemed you or he set you free when you were a captive to sin and to Satan. He set you free when he redeemed you with his own precious blood to the end that you might serve and glorify God as a new creature in Christ with a hope that reaches up to heaven and with thanksgiving in your heart. Amen.